Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Dwayne Roller for a conversation about the life of Cleopatra Cellini II, the daughter of the famous Queen of Egypt, Cleopatra VII, and the Roman statesman, Mark Antony. In this conversation, Dr. Roller and I explore the life of Cleopatra Cellini, including things like the early period of her life and her reign as a queen of Mauritania, which was a kingdom in northern Africa in the Mediterranean basin. Dr. Roller is Professor Emeritus of Classics at The Ohio State University in the U.S. He is the author of over 200 scholarly articles and 14 books. A couple books that are relevant to this topic includes... Cleopatra's Daughter and Other Royal Women of the Augustan Era, which was published by Oxford University Press, and a book on her mother titled Cleopatra, A Biography, which was also published by Oxford University Press. And Dr. Roller joins us today from Santa Fe, New Mexico in the U.S. Welcome to the call, Duane. Well, I'm very glad to be here and very much looking forward to our conversation. Me too. It's great to have you here. So who was Cleopatra Cellini. Cleopatra Cellini was the daughter of two very important people in ancient history. Her mother was Cleopatra VII, the famous Cleopatra, the last queen of Egypt. And her father was the Roman Mark Antony, who of course was a very important personality of his own era, both in Roman politics and then eventually in the world of Egypt. And when when and where was um, Cleopatra Cellini born? She was born in 40 BC and presumably in Alexandria in Egypt. And she lived until about the turn of the century. We're not quite sure when he died, when she died, but about 5 BC, we think. Okay. So her parents are Cleopatra the, the seventh of Egypt and Mark Antony. Uh, from from Rome, so how how confident are we in the canonical source for Mark Antony being the the, the the parent? And I want to go in a moment to in a moment to speak about her early life with parents. But how do we know it's how do we know it's Mark Mark Antony? Well, of course, in one sense, we never know who the father is of any child. But Mark Antony claimed parenthood, claimed he was the father, and so we believe that he actually was the father. There's no reason to doubt this. And Cleopatra Cellini, of course, after her father had died, claimed her parentage from Cleopatra VII and Mark Antony. Okay. So that sounds uh, fairly verified at that point. I think so. Okay. Um, So it's believe that she may have been born in Alexandria. Can you speak more about her early life? What's known about it? Well, in one sense, we know very little about it, but maybe just for a little bit of background, uh, Antony and Cleopatra had known each other for a while, and they met in Tarsus, which is in southeastern Asia Minor. It's in Turkey today. And Antony was on a mission to the east, cleaning up the mess that had been created by the assassination of Julius Caesar a few years previously. And he set up his headquarters in... Tarsus, and he summoned all the rulers of the Eastern Mediterranean to come see him, 
and one of these was Cleopatra. And obviously this was essentially a political maneuver, but the relationship turned personal very quickly. And we have the very good description in Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra of her coming up the river and meeting with Antony, which is lifted directly from ancient sources. And of course, we, we, we don't know what happened, but we know that about nine or 10 months later, Cleopatra gave birth to Cleopatra Cellini and a brother, there were twins, a brother named Alexander Helios. So the two twins were the sun and the moon. And so Cleopatra Cellini was born in 40 BC, uh, probably in the late summer. And as often the case with children in antiquity, we know very little about their earliest years, but she probably was relatively well educated in terms of what we know about her early life. And she was positioned presumably to continue as a ruler of Egypt if her mother were to die. Uh, I should say parenthetically that one issue always in looking at ancient history is that we know how it turned out. We know what's going to happen. But of course, the people involved didn't know what was happening. And so it was presumed that someday Cleopatra Cellini, with or without her twin brother, would probably continue as rulers of Egypt. But this all collapsed 10 years later when Cleopatra Cellini was 10 years old, when the Romans came and through a complex series of events, invaded Alexandria, invaded Egypt, Cleopatra committed suicide, Antony committed suicide, and the Romans annexed Egypt, and it became a province of the Roman Empire, and that's in 30 BC. That will be a good um, point that we'll want to revisit then what happens after that point when she's 10 years old. But before yes. we, but before we get, get there, uh, Duane, um, and this conversation obviously isn't about um, some other child or some other person, but I do think it's relevant the siblings. So do, what do scholars uh, know or believe around Cleopatra having a child with Julius Caesar previous? Yes, uh, about six years previously, Julius Caesar had come to Egypt. And again, it was a political mission that turned personal. And he was essentially invited to Egypt because of complex issues in internal politics and in the Roman situation at that time. And he essentially put Cleopatra on the throne. Her father, the 12th Ptolemy, had died relatively recently. His sons and daughters were quarreling. Julius Caesar put Cleopatra on the throne. But again, the relationship became personal and Cleopatra had a child. And there was some dispute who the father was, but I think by all accounts, we can assume it was Julius Caesar. And that certainly was the, uh, the uh, received wisdom of the situation that it was Julius Caesar's child. He was named Caesarian, little Caesar. And so he would have been the oldest child of Cleopatra, father Julius Caesar, and he would have been about 17 when his mother died. There are the two twins, Cleopatra, Cellini, and Alexander. Mm -hmm. And then there's a fourth child, Ptolemy, who really doesn't figure much in anything because he seems to die at a relatively early age. Okay. 
that is helpful. So it's believed that there's three siblings or half siblings. Yes, Total. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, two full siblings, one half sibling. Yeah. Okay. Understood. So what yeah. what happens after her parents commit suicide? She's ten years old. What what happens in her life at that point? She's ten years old, and Octavian, who's the victor, who's going to become the emperor Augustus a few years later, mm -hmm. scoops up all of the children, and Caesarian is very quickly eliminated. He's the only known son of Julius Caesar, and that gives him an immense amount of power, and Octavian doesn't want to have to deal with that, so he's out. So the three remaining children are scooped up and taken to Rome. And this is a long-standing Roman policy to bring dispossessed royal children to Rome, to raise them, to educate them, and then maybe with the thought of putting them back on the throne in their proper kingdoms, but being beholden to Rome at the same time. Well, the two boys, Alexander and Ptolemy, drop out of the record very quickly, and they probably simply died. Their life has been totally disrupted. Their parents are dead. They've been removed from a tropical climate to Italy. Uh, they, they just disappear, Not, nothing strange. Okay. But Cleopatra Cellini then, within a very few years after 30 BC, is the only surviving child of Antony and Cleopatra, and she's being raised in Rome in the household of Octavian's sister, Octavia, who does that kind of thing. She's got a lot of dispossessed children in her household. And you can go to Rome today and you can see where her house is, the remains are still there, and Augustus's house is right next door on the Palatine Hill. So if she's being raised in Rome in this period, what's known or presumed about the languages she would have known and learned and uh, any religious affiliation? Well, languages, uh, she certainly would have known Greek because that was basically the language of her family. She obviously would have learned Latin very quickly although educated Romans were bilingual, Antony and Cleopatra would have spoken Greek to each other. But certainly Greek and Latin, whether she knew Egyptian, we just don't know. We know that her mother did. And whether her mother had given this to her or not, we don't know. But learning Greek and Latin would have prepared her really for anything in the Greco-Roman world that she needed to know. Because she could read Greek treatises, she could read Latin treatises, and she can, could converse with a vast amount of Greeks who lived in Rome at the time. And Egyptian, which her mother knew, that would have been Coptic at that point in time? Well, it's the ancestor, really, of Coptic, yeah. The language has evolved, but yeah, it, it's, it's whatever was spoken by the Egyptian indigenous population in Egypt in the first century BC. Okay. Why do you think she wasn't eliminated by, the, by, by Rome? Well, I think there was no plan to eliminate anybody except Caesarian, who had too much power. It was probably assumed that the two boys would also grow up in Rome, and something went wrong. There, there are some suggestions they were eliminated or whatever, but they don't really hold water. They probably just didn't survive the disruption in their lives. But as I said, it was typical to bring dispossessed 
royal children to Rome and remembering that the people at the time didn't know how this was going to play out. They probably thought that there might be a position for all three of them at some time in the future. And because they would have been suitably Romanized, they could essentially uphold Roman interests. We, we have other cases of uh, uh, royal children being sent all over the fringes of the empire to be essentially Roman uh, kind of markers in those areas, but to rule their own kingdoms. And of course, we'll be talking about one of those very shortly. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a good segue. So um, can you speak about her adulthood and, and career as, um, as a ruler? Okay, she's 10 years old when she goes to Rome. And also in Rome, among several dispossessed royalty, is a man named Juba, who was probably about 16 at this time. And he was the dispossessed king of Numidia, which is essentially the western part of modern Tunisia. Okay. Uh, his father had been king of Numidia, and the Romans had taken over Numidia. His father committed suicide back in the early 40s BC. And so Juba, in the same pattern as Cleopatra Cellini, had been brought to Rome and was being raised in Octavia's household. So the kid, two kids would have known each other very quickly and uh, probably became friends. And so when Cleopatra Cellini approached the age of marriage, which officially is 15 for a Roman woman, even if it's not implemented, you make the arrangements then. It was kind of a natural pairing to put her and Juba together, two dispossessed royalty. But the question was, what was going to be done with them? Juba couldn't be sent back to Numidia because that's a Roman province now. But west of Numidia, that is essentially modern Algeria and Morocco, was a vast unorganized region that needed some kind of organization. Its native kings had died in the Roman Civil War some years previously. There was already a Roman presence there. There were merchants and traders. Not much attention had been paid to it because everything was happening in the Eastern Mediterranean. So it was a natural evolution of events for Juba and Cleopatra Cellini to marry and to be sent off to be king and queen of a new allied kingdom of Mauritania, a vast area, a thousand miles across. Okay. And how old would Juba been approximately at the time of their marriage? He would have been 17 or 18 at about that time. Yeah, so that's certainly, and, and he'd been trained, he'd been on campaign with Augustus, and he'd been trained to be a proper Roman aristocrat. And he also was very well educated. He was already writing some treatises. Okay, and so before we get more into the um, reign in Mauritania, um, so I I read, um, correct me if this is inaccurate, that she was queen of Numidia for one year. If that was the case, why why the one year? Well, some sources say that Juba and Cleopatra Cellini were returned to Numidia, but these tend to be fairly late sources, two or three hundred years later. And I don't think that holds up. 
very rarely would the Romans deprovincialize a region and restore it to native rule. It did happen in a couple of cases in Asia Minor, but I don't think that would have had any legal sense. But on the other hand, Cleopatra Cellini might have claimed that she was queen of Numidia, going back to claims that her mother had made. She probably still thought she was the legitimate queen of Egypt. Uh, the Ptolemies had ruled the Cyrenaica, modern Libya, which is between Egypt and Numidia. So she probably made a lot of claims. And in antiquity, they're, they're often, well, put it this way, there are often a lot of claims to rule which don't hold up. But we have to think of Cleopatra Cellini, 15 years old, the only surviving heir to the whole tradition of the Ptolemaic rulers that go all the way back to the first Ptolemy, who was a companion of Alexander the Great. Mm -hmm. And she also had Persian blood. She was a descendant of the great kings of Persia, Darius, Xerxes, those. So she is a person who has a great deal of status and power, and it would be not unexpected for her to enhance her position in this new evolving world of the Roman Empire. But I don't think she ever had any legal claim to Numidia. Okay. So if it didn't make sense for Rome to put Juba and Cellini in Numidia as client kings and king and queen, what was different about um, Mauritania at that time? Mauritania at that time had no legitimate ruler. Okay. Uh, it, it had been divided into two parts and roughly one part like Algeria, one part like Morocco. And it had indigenous rulers who went well back, but both of them had died in the 30s BC. One had died naturally, another had been involved in the Roman Civil War and was killed in Greece. So Mauritania had no legitimate ruler. And it seems like there are two things the Romans could do. One would be to provincialize it, the other would be to set someone up there to uphold Roman interests. Provincializing it probably didn't make sense. As I said, it's a vast area and probably trying to set up a Roman government in this vast unorganized area at a time when things were still unstable at Rome didn't make sense. But because they had Juba and Cleopatra Cellini who had African origins and were kind of sitting around waiting for something to do. It just made sense to set them up as allied rulers of this area because they had a certain somewhat indigenous quality and they'd been raised and educated in Rome. So it would be hoped that they could hold up Roman interests. And as I said, there were merchants and traders in this area who were kind of crying out for Roman support. So it all kind of fits together and makes good sense. Okay, so they're, they get married, um, I presume in Rome, that's where they were? As far as we know. Okay. That kind of detail just isn't available. Yeah, okay. And then they, they make their way with Rome support to uh, Mauritania. Um, can you uh, t share more about their reign in Mauritania? Okay, they go to a place which is called Yol, I-O-L, which was kind of a old Phoenician trading post. 
and they set this up as their new capital, and they name it Caesarea, which is the way the era works. Uh, Allied kings and queens were naming places Caesarea all over the empire. The most famous is maybe the one by Herod the Great, Caesarea in, in what's now Israel. And so, so they set up this capital of Caesarea. They make it a great cultural and intellectual center, a place of architectural innovation. It's in Algeria today, modern Churchill. Okay. And remember, Cleopatra Cellini probably still has the idea that she uh, is the legitimate ruler of North Africa in some way. She still has connections back in Egypt. She imports Egyptian art. It's very strange to go into the museum now and Churchill and see Egyptian pharaonic sculptures. It obviously was a great cosmopolitan and cultural center. And as I said, Juba was already a historian of some note, and he was interested in architectural innovation, which was important in Rome. It has the first theater, the first Roman-style theater outside of Italy, and Juba sets forth on a, a project of exploration and learning about the area, and Cleopatra Cellini is there. Uh, his implementer, because she still has her connections in Alexandria, where the greatest library in the world is. So they really are a power couple. It's really perfectly clear that they're working on equal terms. She has a lot more prestige than he does. You know, he's, he, he's the descendant of a minor African state. She, of course, has all of the ancestry I mentioned. So the two of them work together to make Caesarea the great capital of the Western Mediterranean. And again, because we don't know how it's going to play out, who knows what ideas they might have had about reestablishing a, a new empire in North Africa out of the reach of the Romans. So that starts in 25 BC, and, and that's basically their reign. And of course, their military issues, their natives in the hinterland who cause trouble and things like that. But we tend to remember the pair of them today now more for their creative and intellectual qualities than the military ones. Mm -hmm. And if you were to reflect on her reign, that period of her life in uh, Mauritania, how would you um, how would you summarize how she was as a ruler in uh, Mauritania? Well, we have to remember that information about women is always scant and tends to be related to the men in their lives. But because she's importing these Egyptian sculptures and Egyptian artworks, we have to see her as the heir of the Ptolemaic Egyptian Empire and see her as perhaps having plans never implemented to move in that particular direction. And when their son is born, he's named Ptolemy, which again is an obvious political statement as to where he may be in, in this new world. But in one sense, it doesn't last very long because she seems to be dead by about 5 BC. Uh, one of the few documents we have is a poem that was written by a man named Crenagoras, who was essentially kind of the poet laureate of the Augustan era. And we can, it's a poem on her death. And we can uh, relate this poem to about the year 5 BC. So she was only 35 when she died. Uh, we don't know why or how. Childbirth is a very common factor in women of that era, but we just don't know. So even though she leaves this son Ptolemy, 
plans for a new Ptolemaic North African empire were never implemented, but you must have had that in mind and must have been thinking in that direction. Hmm. And then how many children? You mentioned one. Is it known if she had any more children than that? That's all we know about, and it's a little strange because Ptolemy doesn't seem to have been born until they had been married about 10 years. And of course, we, we, we can't really, you know, uh, go into the biology of the situation, but it seems odd that your firstborn is going to be after about 10 years. But infant mortality was 50% at that time. So there may have been other children. There is a reference to one other child named Drusilla, which is one of the names of Libya, the wife of Augustus, but it's just a passing reference. And it's very hard to put any Drusilla into place. And there are some chronological issues with her. She might have been a grandchild. But Ptolemy is the only one we really know very much about. Okay. In a point of clarification then, so Mauritania during uh, their rule, uh, Cellini and Juba, would it, been, it would have been a vassal state then of Rome? Is that, is that a fair yeah, term? Uh, the, the whole concept of the Allied Kingdom was basically to set rulers in areas that were too fringe or perhaps too primitive mm -hmm. for direct Roman control. As I said, Mauritania was exceedingly large. And this is a policy that had started back in the second century. You, you bring someone to Rome, you educate him, you send him back to his kingdom, and he has to play it both ways, not always successfully. He has to convince the locals that because he's a local, or she in some cases, he or she is acting in their best interests. But he has to convince the Romans that he's acting in Roman interests. And these two things may not always, well, they may be at cross purposes sometimes. So it's a very difficult situation. And, and many of these rulers are obscure, but in addition to Juba and Cleopatra Cellini, probably the one who's most famous is Herod the Great of Judea, who was much in the same position and was getting hit from all sides. He was getting hit from the locals for not being local enough. He was getting hit by the Romans for not upholding Roman interests. So it's a kind of a no-win situation, and it's a policy that didn't last long. It kind of dies out by the middle of the first century AD, but at least at this particular time, the end of the first century BC, it was a major part of Roman imperial policy. Okay. Based on your, your readings and research, did you get any sense that she wanted to one day return and rule Egypt? Well, I think she claimed to be the legitimate queen of Egypt. And again, we get into heavy speculation here. And her father had endowed her with certain territories, like Kyrene, west of Egypt, which is one thing that got him into a lot of trouble in Rome because he was giving uh, Roman territory to his children, and that's kind of a no-no. But I think we can probably assume, again, not knowing, what's going to happen. Rome had been in civil war for nearly a century, and it ended with Augustus, in part because Augustus was a very astute politician, in part because he lived to be 76 years old. But nobody knew that was going to happen. So it would be perfectly reasonable to assume that Rome would descend into chaos again, as it had happened previously, 
and that Egypt would deprovincialize or be reclaimed, and Cleopatra Selene and her children, with or without Juba, would be the new rulers of some mega state all the way across North Africa from Egypt to Mauritania. But Augustus lived too long and was too smart, and that never really happened. Okay. Never happened at all. Okay. And we don't need to spend much time on this question because it doesn't pertain to Cellini's life, but why is she referenced as Cellini the second versus the first? There was an early there was an earlier Cleopatra Cellini the first, uh, one in the Ptolemaic dynasty. And so technically she's Cleopatra Cellini the second, but she's so much more important than her predecessor, we often don't even use the second. Okay. Closing question. How do you think she should be best remembered for? I think she should best be remembered as a very dynamic and powerful and intelligent woman in an era when things were very difficult for women who tried very hard to continue the legacy of her even more famous mother, the great Cleopatra, and tried to deal with the Romans in a situation where you never didn't really know what was going to happen. And she also was a co-ruler with her husband Juba and helped him in his research and writing. And the two of them together made Caesarea a great regional capital of, of the era. And, and Caesarea remained important into late antiquity with the legacy of, of these two people, even long after they were gone and long after the Romans finally provincialized the area, which happened uh, in about the AD 40s. Okay. It's been very enjoyable having you on the show, Dwayne. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's been my great pleasure. If anyone listening would like to read up more on Cleopatra Cellini's life, again, Dr. Roller wrote the book, Cleopatra's Daughter and Other Royal Women of the Augustan Era. If you'd like to read up more on her mother, Cleopatra VII, he wrote Cleopatra, a biography. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Dwayne and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.